Hello, and welcome to Beth Takun and Spiritual Seasons. In this series, we are studying the weekly Torah portions in the context of the overall calendar, seeing how it is that each portion fits into a larger year-long pattern of salvation. This week, we are in Parsha Nitzavim Vayelik from Deuteronomy 29.10 through the end of chapter 31. Although this is a combined portion, many think of Nitzavim Vayelik as a single portion that is occasionally split in half. So in other cases of combined portions, um, they are really two distinct portions that are sometimes read together. But this one is different in that many think it's really one portion that can be split if needed in order to make all the portions fit into the calendar properly. These are the two shortest portions in the whole Torah. So um, really together they are one portion. One consideration for dividing up the portions each year is that certain portions are always meant to be read before or after certain special days. Nitzavim is one of these special ones that needs to fall just so in the calendar. The calendar purposely um, is planned out each year so that Nitzavim is always read just before Rosh Hashanah. And there are not very many that need to be read at a certain point like this. And so Nitzavim is one of those. So clearly the sages have seen a strong link between Nitzavim and the Moed of Rosh Hashanah. In fact, one tradition says that Moses spoke out Nitzavim on Rosh Hashanah. So Nitzavim means stand. And the name comes from the first phrase in the portion in which Moses is addressing all the gathered people. He says, you stand today, all of you, before your God. And he goes on to say that they are gathered together to enter into the covenant with God, to establish them as his people and him as their God. <clears throat> so in a way, we, this, we could say this is a renewal. This had already happened a, a generation previous. The second, um, second part of the two-part portion here, Vayelik, means and he went, referring to Moses in the first verse of chapter 31, which reads, So Moses went and spoke these words to all Israel. And then it goes on from there. So topics in the portion include some of Moses' last words to the people about being in covenant with God. Key word here, covenant and being in covenant and so that includes um, topics here, specific topics include a portrait of the Israelite or the family that turns away from God and becomes a stumbling block. And so this stumbling block description flows into a description of a devastated Israel. And the nations around just kind of shaking their heads at what God has brought on Israel and that description leads to a description of Israel's repentance and restoration from captivity. And so in the restoration part, we have the verse that says, The Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your descendants to love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, so that you may live. The curses are turned upon Israel's enemies and Israel prospers. Okay, so the repentance, 
the circumcision of the heart, the curses being turned on Israel's enemies, and they prosper. So there's a whole gamut going on here. We also have here the famous verse in which Moses says, For this commandment which I command you today is not too difficult for you, nor is it out of reach. It is not in heaven, nor is it beyond the sea, but the word is very near you. Moses again lays out the path before them, life or death, and that's maybe the main theme of all of Deuteronomy. We keep coming back to the two paths. And he famously says here, so choose life. In chapter 31, Moses says that he's 120 years old, and he assures them that under Joshua, God will be with them and deliver up their enemies. He tells them to be strong and courageous, and he says the same to Joshua in front of the people. Be strong and courageous, all of you. Be strong and courageous, Joshua. And we also have here the description of the completion of the Torah. It says that Moses wrote this law and gave it to the priests, instructing them to read it aloud to the people once every seven years at Sukkot, at the Sukkot of the Shemitah year, when the land is rested, that's the seventh year rest, and debts are forgiven in that year, and the storehouses are thrown open, and everything that comes up belongs to everyone in the Shemitah year. So at the end of the portion... God calls to, um, he calls to Moses and to Joshua as God himself commissions Joshua. He has Moses and Joshua come near, and God himself commissions Joshua. God says here that Moses is about to lie down with his fathers and that Israel will indeed play the harlot with the strange gods of the land. He tells Moses to write out a song. And um, this song will act as a witness against the people. It's like, I'm telling you right now what's going to happen, and we're going to record that. And that will be a witness against you. And so that song is recorded in the next portion, Ha'azinu. At the end of Vayelik, God, um, as I said, commissions Joshua, and once again, he tells him again to be strong and courageous and And it looks like God is speaking directly to Joshua here in the same way that God would speak directly to Moses. And so I find that interesting. Moses is unique in how God would talk to him. But in this moment here, it looks like in this one moment, God is directly speaking to Joshua face to face. It doesn't say that, but God is speaking directly to Joshua. And so finally, the Levites take the Torah and place it beside the Ark of the Covenant. And Moses assembles the people to hear the song, which we call the Song of Moses. And so we don't get to the song quite yet. That's, that's what the next portion begins with, the Song of Moses. But everything is set for the next portion with the people gathered around ready to listen. Well, it's significant that the description of the completion of the Torah is found here in the last portion that is always read before Rosh Hashanah. In a way, the Torah ends and we come to Rosh Hashanah, but it doesn't quite end, does it? In fact, we extend the reading of the last chapters, you know, which include this song. They also include Moses' blessings 
of the tribes. Um, and so we extend those last few chapters for a whole month. So the Torah is sort of ending here with this description of the end of, the, of Moses finishing the writing of the Torah and placing it next to the ark, um, but it's sort of not ending either. And so catch this. It's like the ending is overlapping with a new beginning. <clears throat> so the end is enwedged in the beginning. Rosh Hashanah is a new beginning in time, right? A beginning in time. There's a new beginning in time that's just about to happen. But regarding the Torah, we keep reading the end of the Torah beyond Rosh Hashanah for a month, in fact. And so the ending of the Torah is stretched out over that new beginning in time. And uh, we won't start again back in Genesis until the second week of October this year. Here we are in the first week now of September. We're not going to begin Bereshit until the first week of October. And so the new journey begins and the tail end of the Torah keeps going over top of it. So can you feel that the seventh month is finishing a journey, but it's also at the same time beginning a new journey? The seventh month is doing double duty, um, so to speak. And so let me repeat this idea that I've said before here, because we're seeing a fascinating clue here in Nitzavim that this double duty is indeed the case, because we see the conclusion of the Torah in this portion. And this is the idea that there are two seven-month journeys in the year. And so the way we get 14 months, if we have two seven-month journeys, we need 14 months. Uh, but we actually only have 12. And so the way we get the 14 is by realizing that the beginnings and the endings overlap. We count the first month over here. We count this one twice and the seventh month over here twice. And so the first journey goes from here all the way over to here. And then the second journey starts again at that same place, you know, the seventh month, and comes back around and, and includes the first month once again. And, um, and so that first journey, it emphasizes a walk in the light, while the second this one down here emphasizes a walk in the darkness. In the first, we acquire the light of spiritual truth. Now, of course, there's walking involved. Everything, every piece has the whole picture in it. We're talking about emphases here. And so that first journey is about acquiring the light and acquiring the truth and being moved from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light. Um, and the second journey, in that second journey, we bring it down, or so to say. We, we could even say that we become the light as the world grows dark. We, we figure out how to walk out the light of truth that we've received up here in the mundane nitty-gritty of life. And so even as we rest in the seventh month from one journey, right? Seven is the Sabbath rest. So we rest from the first journey after six months of journeying, and we celebrate with a big part party. Um, 
the party that we could call Sukkot. Um, even then, even as we know that we are coming to the end of a journey, we recognize that the seventh month is also the preparation and the sending out on a second journey. And what's lovely is that the sukkah is not only a symbol of rejoicing and harvest and community and those final things, it's also a symbol of journey, of beginning things. And so the original Sukkot that the, that this festival is named for uh, were the portable homes used when Israel journeyed out of Egypt and through the wilderness. The Sukkah represents both that ending celebration and the launching out on a new adventure, this main symbol of this main festival in the seventh month. It does double duty too. And so we see ideas connected to this kind of complex season clearly referenced here in this portion. So chapter 30 begins by speaking of repentance, the idea of shuva in uh, chapter 30, verse 2. You might see it in your English translation as the word return. And so the big harvest that the first journey in the year leads us to is a deeper vision of the self and repentance, especially what's not quite right inside this vision, this inner vision. Uh, and that leads us to repentance. And so our harvest here in this first journey is repentance. And this idea of teshuva is followed in verse 6. Okay, so we're talking about chapter 30, verse 2. It's talking about repentance. By the time we get to verse 6, it's talking about circumcision of the heart. And circumcision of the heart is the critical act of grace that opens the doorway to success in the second journey of the year. Repentance is a reference to that first journey, the, the harvest of that first journey, and then circumcision of the heart is what we need to be successful in the second phase. And so circumcision of the heart really is associated with both Elul and with Tishrei, both the sixth month and the seventh month. God is um, recently bringing a lot of clarity for me with this idea of circumcision. It's one of those that I could see just fits into the calendar, but not quite exactly. I, mean, I was trying to grab a hold of it, and it's getting, um, the Lord is bringing some clarity to me recently. Um, and so that's a topic that hopefully we will be addressing in the Yom Kippur teaching. And so stay tuned for that. It's really quite an amazing picture uh, regarding the connecting of the circumcision of the heart, the ears, and the lips, and how each of these is connected to the calendar. And so I recently heard of a teaching by Rabbi Ginsberg that does that, connects these different circumcisions to different days in the calendar. And so I'm excited to share that, but not today. And so for now, I'm going to make um, just a quick string of connections regarding circumcision and Yom Kippur. And it's mostly for those interested. But again, our, our idea here is circumcision of the heart and its connection to this period, the sixth and the seventh months, and especially to Yom Kippur. And so I'm just going to go through these, this chain of ideas quickly, but it'll be in the notes that are posted 
below the video, and so if it's hard to follow, just tune out for a couple of minutes. Um, it really needs a longer time to explain, but it goes like this. Heart circumcision is associated with the new covenant. And so recall that the new covenant uh, involves the Torah being written on the gut and the heart. And so the new covenant is the second covenant, the one that follows the Mosaic covenant. And so we should be particularly looking for the new covenant at some point after we see the picture of the Mosaic covenant in the progression of the yearly calendar, right? Two covenants, first one Mosaic, second one is new covenant. And so where do we see that in the calendar? Well, we associate the Mosaic covenant with Shavuot, Okay, so Shavuot, Mosaic Covenant, the receiving of the Torah at Mount Sinai. And we can see a scriptural connection between the New Covenant and Yom Kippur. It is at Yom Kippur that Moses comes down the mountain with the second set of tablets, the tablets that were not broken. And so again, the Mosaic Covenant is pictured at Shavuot, and the New Covenant is associated um, with the Torah on the heart, and that is connected to Yom Kippur, partly through the giving of the second set of tablets, the, the tablets that were not broken, which is a picture of the covenant that comes with power for us to be faithful, the covenant that we won't break, and that's the New Covenant. And so now, the Torah doesn't explicitly say that Moses descended with the second set of tablets on Yom Kippur. But that's the tradition, and we can work that out by working out Moses' three 40-day trips up and down Mount Sinai, starting at the beginning of the third month. And so moving forward now with connections to, well, the the sixth day anyway of the third month, which is the day of Shavuot. Moses goes up. So that's when we start our counts of 40 days, 40 days, 40 days, few days extra in between there. So moving forward now with connections to the calendar here in the portion, more connections to the calendar. Let's just hone in on uh, the two key words that we combine uh, to name this portion, Nitzavim Vayelik. How do these words speak to this moment in the calendar? And so again, the first means stand, and the second means walk. Well, imagine you are sending away your son or daughter to college for the first time. A, a new journey is beginning for him or her. And what do you want to tell your child, your, your, your grown-up son or daughter now? You, first of all, you want to say, stand. Stand on the foundation that we, your parents, tried to provide for you. Stand on the truths you know. Most of all, stand on the covenant with God, right? Stand firmly. Even if you slip and you experience some consequences from that, because that is going to happen, stand back up. Don't lose hold of your relationship with God through the Messiah and root yourself in that. And the next thing you want to tell him or her is, now start walking. Carry your light out there. At some point, we have to leave our point of origin and walk into the dark unknown. 
and be the light there that God has made us to be, but we we stay standing there at our origin too. We, we, we keep that foundation with us. And so we have to bring our voice of truth into the place of lies, right? This, this place of sheker, this place of lies. And the nature of walking is that every step requires leaving the last place behind. And so we can never afford to get too comfortable. Walking isn't so much about comfort as it is about movement to a goal. And in the end, that goal is really God himself. We're moving toward him. And so again, as we stand on the precipice of a new phase of growth with the Lord, a new walk through the darkness of the winter half of the year, the message we hear in this portion is stand and walk. Stand on the foundation of the covenant with your maker and walk forward with that anchor within you. And so I want to go a little deeper now with an idea from the first sentence of the portion. It's a theme that has a strong connection to Rosh Hashanah. The first verse of Nitzavim in its fullness, and I just read a little bit of it there before, but let me read the whole thing now. It says, you are standing today, all of you, before the Lord your God, the heads of your tribes, your elders, and your officers, all the men of Israel, your little ones, your wives, and the sojourner who is in your camp, from the one who chops your wood to the one who draws your water, so that you may enter into the sworn covenant of the Lord your God, which the Lord your God is making with you today, that he may establish you today as his people." and that he may be your God, as he promised you, and as he swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. So first, the plain meaning here is that they are entering into a covenant, and they are showing their choice by standing. If you're choosing to stand here in this moment, then you're choosing, and this is kind of what Moses is saying to them, if you're standing here, if you're choosing to stand here in this moment, Um, then you're choosing to be a part of this covenant, right? It's like if you don't want, you know, if you don't want in, then go sit down somewhere outside of the body of Israel. If you're standing in the body now, then you're claiming oneness with Israel, and you are also claiming this covenant relationship with God. So I find this interesting. This is a generation that can stand tall. We see other people entering into other covenants with God in other ways. Here, as far as what we know, they're being told, stand, stand together. And this is very much a part of this time in the calendar for us. And so this generation has been through a lot of growing up in the wilderness, and they're a desert toughened, God-fearing army now, and they can stand, and they know how to camp, and they know how to march together, and they are firmly attached to this Torah and to God, and they can stand together in this moment. And so that is their means of entering into this covenant. It's just so fascinating, I think. Well, on this first point, let's connect to Rosh Hashanah by recognizing that there is a covenant renewal happening on Rosh Hashanah, a crowning of God as our king again. Remember all this kingness 
and king imagery and this crown on the pomegranate um, associated with Rosh Hashanah. And what, fro- what flows from this crowning of him again as king on Rosh Hashanah are the other days of the Tishrei Moedim. That's the ball that gets everything rolling, us standing together and saying, you are our king, we choose you again. And so that choice on Rosh Hashanah, um, that is a renewal of the covenant. And that gets worked out in the days that follow through the Messiah, first on Yom Kippur and then on Sukkot. And we have a part to play, you know, in not so much on Yom Kippur, but there is an implied role for us there too. And so what I want to hone in on here, though, is is this idea of unity. We see it all over um, the sentence, you are standing today, all of you. And then it names a range of types of people, from the heads of the tribes down to the one who chops, chops wood and the one who draws water, all of them right? This, this unity, this ultimate picture is really going to be the ultimate goal in the 12th month as we are, as we come to Purim, this standing together against the enemy. But we see that seed that's happening um, as we come into Tishrei and, and Rosh Hashanah ends about unity and standing together. And um, as we know, Um, It's a little confusing, though. Why are all these separate parts being named here? Um, We know that any body must be made up of many different specialized parts in order for the whole body to function. And that's very much a part of the end, is all the different parts knowing who they are. The stomach knows it's the stomach. The hand knows it's the hand. That's coming with maturity. And then all of that is being worked together for the body um, and so we know that there is diversity for the body and um, in order for it to work properly, and that's good and necessary. But on the other hand, and that is something we're looking forward to at the end, but really the deeper essence of this moment at, at Rosh Hashanah is standing equally before God. Um, the prince in this image that we're being given here The prince is standing shoulder to shoulder next to the water drawer, right? When it comes to entering into the covenant with God, they are all equal. They're all equal participants. And so no matter who you are or what station you have in the body, you walk with God. Your walk with God and and your relationship with him is no different from the one who is on the highest pedestal in the society. And so there are times for us to focus on our uniqueness. And there are times to focus on our root similarities. And really, this one here is a time for focusing on our root similarities. And if we look at the next sentence, it brings us in yet another, uh, it brings in yet another aspect of this unity, the unity over time. And so there's a unity that we can have in in a place, and there's a unity that we can have over time. And so it says next, it is not with you alone that I am making this sworn covenant, but with whoever is standing here with us today before the Lord our God, and with whoever is not here with us today. 
And so we get included in that unity. We should be reading in this portion our own selves standing there. And so a thread here is being cast into the future, a rope that we can grab onto to connect this moment to all of us who will enter into the covenant. And um, by the way, that did you notice that that verse explicitly, the first verse explicitly, or sentence, mentions the sojourner in their camp, the non-Israelite standing to enter into the covenant with them, right? The sojourner is standing there with them to enter into the covenant, shoulder to shoulder with the rest of Israel. And so in Grant and Robin's discussion this week, Robin said, and she was talking about this whole sentence together in general, and she said, this is an invitation to the world. So one point I want to make today is, you know, on this topic of unity, is that the, the walls we build to separate us from others are often built on very little that's substantive anyway, but they truly keep us apart in many ways. And so as we're thinking about standing together as one, as we're thinking about what we have in common beneath all the rest, let's think a little bit about what the rest is that so often is kind of getting in our way. And a point here is that there's hardly anything to those little differences. And so we actually form cliques based on those things We put certain people, in fact, we're putting everybody in a certain kind of a box. And um, it happens so quickly. It's almost subconscious. We're just sizing up someone. And um, usually we dismiss a person when we meet them as, you know, that's not not a person that I'm going to be hanging out a lot with, for example. What do we base that on? We're basing it on maybe their age, their hairstyle, their choice of clothing, how self-assured they are, or how awkward they are. Um, and so, don't get me wrong, these, these things all contribute to a person's place in society, but how well does their place in society reflect their place in the kingdom of God, the spiritual kingdom, right? That social position is not meaningless. And in fact, Moses names all of these people in descending order. (laughs) In fact, it kind of is conspicuous that way. Um, But social position is not the totality of a person or even the most essential part of a person. And we're just closing people off way too quickly. And we're not even really thinking about it. And honestly, when we do that, it leaves um, a negative feeling. It just leaves a negative um, residue, I would say, subconsciously on us. The Lubavitcher Rebbe comments on this um, passage of uh, talking about unity here. And he says, who is to say who is ultimately higher on the ladder of achievement? Honestly, who, who is really, who's to say who is higher on that ladder of achievement? Appearances can be deceiving, says the Rebbe. And we tend to over-evaluate ourselves while under-evaluating others. Isn't that the truth? Secondly, says the Rebbe, even if we have evaluated ourselves correctly, just because we are a leader in one particular aspect of life does not mean that there are not other aspects of life in which others are leaders. Right? 
And so we, um, so we can't really trust our eyes in terms of trying to size up a person. We're just building walls unnecessarily. Maybe the spiritual giant in the room is not the pastor or the wizened sage. Right? And this is me talking here, by the way. The Rebbe quote was finished there. Um, maybe it's not that person that everyone would be drawn to as being the leader. And, or maybe the wealthy, or the business leader, whoever that person is that we kind of put on that pedestal for whatever reason. Maybe the real spiritual giant in the room is the one whose job is to stay late to mop the floor. How do you know what spiritual progress that person has made in this life? How do you know what thoughts are going on in that mind and how God weighs them? How do you know what acts of kindness that person does so routinely for other people that you know, compassion and generosity have just become effortless for him or her? And the point of seeing others with this kind of humility is so that it, it helps to tear down the barriers we set up. That person, maybe we might say, you know, in one of these subconscious moments, they're, they're not terribly self-aware. They dress like they rolled around in a pile of clothing heaped on the floor at the Salvation Army, which I love, by the way. I love to shop at the Salvation Army. But, um, you know, we might say they're on a different wavelength, from me. That's just not someone I click with, right? They're on a different planet. And um, I'm not that interested in getting to know them, we might even think. And again, a lot of this is subconscious. And yet, what do you know, really, about that person's stature in the spiritual realm, for example? And what do you know about how that person could lead you and teach you in some aspect of life that you're lacking in. That person might be wearing frumpy clothes that don't fit that well, but who cares about that if they can show you how to be a better friend or a better spouse? So we're too reductionist, and we miss out on much that other members of the body have to teach us, much truth that they can lead us into. Well, in this same vein, Hannah Weisberg tells a remarkable story that the Alshich, I don't know if I'm pronouncing that correctly, Alshich comments upon, and this is the comment. The Talmud tells the story of Rav Yosef, the son of Rabbi Joshua ben Levi, who fell ill and was at the brink of death when his father's prayers brought him back to life. When he came to, his father asked him, my son, What did you see? What did you see in heaven? He was thinking. Rav Yosef replied, I saw an upside-down world. Those who are on top here are on the bottom there. And those who are regarded as lowly are exalted in heaven. That the leader, and the, the quote goes on, that the leader or the sage is superior to the wood hewer or the water carrier is only from our earthbound perspective, which sees a hierarchy of roles. But when you all stand before God, there is no higher and lower. What seems low here is no less lofty and significant in God's eyes. And so that's the end of the quote from the Alshich. Can't say that. (laughs) Okay. Well, okay, to bring this... um, 
back around to the calendar and Rosh Hashanah, unity in Israel is a very important, um, a very important theme for Rosh Hashanah. And why is that? So let's just think into that a little bit more. Rosh Hashanah is a time to stand before God with your community. And that's a moment when our petty differences seem very unimportant. And so as we just said, what do we really know about how God sees us? What do we know about how I've been doing with what God gave me, right? He's given me a certain family. He's given me a certain economic position. Uh, He's given me a certain gender. And so only God knows what he gives to each person. And so how do I know how well someone else is doing with what God um, gave to that person? We just can't know any of these things. And what if, in the end, we all actually look very similarly tiny as we are standing across from an infinitely big God, right? We're all ants anyway, (laughs) as we stand across from him in one way. In another way, we're his chosen bride. And so we have to keep hold of both of those things. But, you know, from the one perspective... If he is this giant, infinite God, and there we stand in front of him, each of us is just teeny, 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 you know, (laughs) in relation to him. And so the king of the universe is too much of an unknown. And, And that's wonderful, because we don't want to be completely able to understand our God. If we could completely understand God, then we would be God. In the face of that awe-inspiring moment of standing before him, all we can do is say, I'm a person living in the Shadowlands, and so are you, and God has put us near to each other here in this moment, and I'm really glad you're standing here with me on this weighty day. Everything seems insignificant in the face of God and under the weight of judgment. Even our petty reasons for not getting along with each other just... Forget about those, at least for Rosh Hashanah. On Rosh Hashanah, the small differences in the water under the bridge, they kind of fade away in the enormity of that moment. And so it's a powerful day for uniting us together. And that that needs to carry through for the rest of that journey and for the whole year, right? The the yearly calendar that is beginning on that day versus the monthly calendar beginning on the other side in Nisan. And so one last thought here on this particular topic. Rabbi Trugman brings in from Rabbi Karlbach that one way to read your standing here, all of you today before the Lord your God, is that all of you can speak to the individual, meaning every part of you, yourself, your whole heart and soul. When you are standing before the Lord, you need to bring all of you, and particularly on Rosh Hashanah, but at any time, really. And how guilty are we of standing there before God in prayer sometimes, many times, and where does our mind go, and all of us is not standing there in front of him? Well, when we approach him and stand before him, we each bring we should each bring our whole being as much as we can in that moment on Rosh Hashanah. And so that's a good word for us as we prepare our hearts and minds to stand before him on that day. Okay, so those were some thoughts about Nitzavim standing before the Lord. I have a few further thoughts now about 
walking by Yelek. We are given a firm foundation, not so that we will stay in the home, but so that we will take our light out into the darkness to walk by faith with God. And this is a huge theme of the second journey in the year. And we see that particularly uh, clearly at Hanukkah, when we light that one little light and it grows to two and three. We're doing that at the winter solstice, which is the darkest time of the year. And so again, this walk in the darkness, um, it actually begins right here at Rosh Hashanah, which is the fall equinox. It aligns with the fall equinox. Um, And that's when the night begins to dominate the day in the northern hemisphere, right? The northern hemisphere is where Israel is located. And so right on that equinox, we have 12 hours of daylight, 12 hours of night across the entire planet. But right when we move past Rosh Hashanah, Uh, Already the night is just a little bit longer than the day. We're headed into the darkness. And so God is calling us now to walk bravely with faith into that inky blackness. And in that walk, we will find great purpose and meaning and nearness to God. And so even as we know ourselves to be standing before the Lord on the firm foundation of the covenant with him, we also walk. And so the the Haftarah emphasizes this idea of Israel walking out to be the light in the darkness of the nations, right? We happen to read this very idea as we're entering, crossing this boundary on Rosh Hashanah and this Haftarah that's helping to prepare us for that. And so in Isaiah 62, it says, for Zion's sake, I will not keep silent And for Jerusalem's sake, I will not be quiet until her righteousness goes forth as brightness and her salvation as a burning torch. The nations shall see your righteousness and all the kings your glory, and you shall be called by a new name that the mouth of the Lord will give. Right? You can't get any clearer than that. About to head into the darkness. Rosh Hashanah marks the boundary. Here our half Torah is telling us, it's going to be a beautiful thing, Israel, and the nations are going to see your light. It's like a torch. It's going to be a beautiful glory to them. Well, the main point I want us to notice here is that while we can apply this standing and walking to ourselves, the actual context here is that Moses is walking right? The sentence. The sentence is about Moses walking, the sentence that starts Vayelik, and speaking to the people. And so we can take some lessons from that for what we can expect in our own journey to come here, this next journey. And so Moses is the example for us here. The verse, at least in this moment and in this portion, so the verse that introduces Vayelik once again reads, and Moses went and spoke all these words to Israel. Moses brought his light to his own people who were trapped in darkness at the time. He brought words to them, words that God himself had given Moses to say. God literally says to Moses, go speak these words to Pharaoh and to my people, and Moses is faithful. But Moses is also reluctant at first. 
I, we, can, we can call this a little stumble maybe at first, to the point that he's kind of arguing with God at the burning bush there over his commission uh, to go into the darkness of Egypt and to take that word of God into that darkness. And I think he was afraid. You could say that his fear made him a bit stiff-necked, right? You see, Moses is one of his people. He's an Israelite. And his story is like the story of Israel. And that includes being a bit stubborn, at least at first. It's really the story of all humanity, if we're being honest. Um, But over and over again, we read in these portions in Deuteronomy that God will work with them to, we could say, unstiffen their necks. An important point here is that God worked with Moses until he overcame that fear. And in the end, Moses went and he spoke. And Moses grew over the course of his walking and speaking to the people. He didn't come to a point of perfection, but we see him growing and learning, learning how to be the leader of a nation after he had been the leader of just a few sheep, right? He learns how to appoint leaders of tens of thousands and thousands, and, and he, God helps him in that. He sends him Jethro even there to help him in some of those things. And God will do the same with us. Our journey is no different, and it's going to look it's going to look like this, and it's going to include some fearful-looking steps, but we will overcome the fear with God's help. God might have to use the rod to bring some humbling now and then, but the end of the story is always reconciliation and blessing and fruitfulness. So remember the book of the Bible we read at Yom Kippur. It's Jonah. Jonah is a great example of one who was a bit stiff-necked, but God didn't accept that. And in the end, Jonah is sent with the words of God, and the result is salvation for the nations, salvation for the city, you know, the great city of Nineveh. And one idea to take from these examples of Moses and Jonah is that it is a part of God's plan, right? We're taking from these lessons of Moses and Jonah what we can be expecting in the journey ahead. And because it's Moses who goes and Moses who speaks here in this portion, this beginning of Vayelech. And um, it's one of the things that we can see from these stories is that it's part of God's plan that we have a time of stumbling a stiff-necked time as we learn to walk at a higher level. But God tells us about that stumbling up front so that we won't lose faith when it happens. He wants us to be totally prepared for the pattern. And in God's plan, we need to fall down a bit in order to see uh, what we have within us, our weakness. He simply does not give us right away what we need to fully succeed. God could have zapped Moses right at the burning bush and just given him and and loosened his tongue and his lips and given him exactly what he needed, but he didn't do that. He didn't do that. So the stumbling is built in, but he gives us a protection by letting us know about all of this that's going to happen ahead of time. There's a lot of energy being put into and a lot of words being put into the Torah to let them know, by the way, you're going to stumble. (laughs) We're going to have this whole 
upcoming portion of Ha'azinu. And if you can remember, it's not the most uplifting song. And so in this portion, God tells Moses that the people will indeed play the harlot and worship the strange gods in the land. They will stumble in their walk because they don't have it within them to not stumble. And so again, couldn't God have just made it, done it another way? Well, he could have. But this stumbling, again, is just a part of the plan. And so don't miss this point. God also shows them that the plan goes on after that stumbling. After the stumbling and the severe consequences, he will pick them up and breathe new life into them, and they will be blessed and fruitful in the end. And Moses was blessed and fruitful in the end. The stumbling is never the end of the story. Jonah was swallowed by a whale after he took a misstep. And I would say, you know, that definitely qualifies as pretty severe consequences. But after he repented, his life went on to bear much fruit, even in just the scene that we see after he spit back up onto the beach. (laughs) And so think about Joshua. What's going through Joshua's mind in this moment, hearing that Israel will fall into idolatry after Moses is taken from them, right? The portion says, well, Moses, God says, you're about to lie down with your fathers and this people, they're going to play the harlot. How, how must Joshua be feeling in this moment? And so at first, we might think that it would make him feel uneasy. But to be honest with you, I think it's the opposite. Joshua knows that the, the instant perfect walk is not what God's plan is. And it's not what Joshua is responsible for making sure happens. It's not God's design. So after hearing that the people simply don't have what it takes to stay faithful... Joshua can relax and say to himself, well, you know, I'm honestly, in the end, this is just out of my hands. All I can do is the best that I can do in each moment and let God work it out with the nation. So it's actually a great burden that is being lifted off of Joshua to lower the bar a little bit. And Joshua can say, okay, God, this is far beyond me. And it's, it's just above me. And This is all you, really. You are the real leader. Now send me wherever you want me to go with these people and give me whatever words you want me to say to them. And it just, um, it takes off some of the pressure there. So maybe today you are feeling daunted by some task of leadership and the burden of that role is sitting heavy on you and you're feeling the great weight of responsibility. Well, that's not entirely bad. I mean, we don't want to completely lift that burden of responsibility off of people. That's also good in its own way. But understand that whoever you are overseeing is going to stumble. The flock will step wrong under your care. So just accept that that is going to happen. But know, too, that God is going to be there to pick up the pieces and make you stronger in the end. It's not all about you and your leadership skills. You don't have what it takes, and they don't have what it takes to follow you. Even if you did have, you know, even if you did have what it it takes to be that perfect leader, they don't have what it takes to follow you perfectly. So this whole thing is much more about God than it is about you. And so again, in recognizing how salvation works, and recognizing that the stumbling is going to happen, 
we are strengthened to stand up again when the stumbling does occur. After we fall, God picks us up and gives us a deeper empowerment to walk faithfully. And this discussion brings us right to what I would consider a rather contentious issue mentioned in this portion. It's the question of whether or not the Torah is too hard for us. Moses says to the people in this portion, for this commandment that I command you today is not too hard for you, neither is it far off. It is not in heaven that you should say, who will ascend to heaven for us and bring it to us, that we may hear it and do it. Neither is it beyond the sea that you should say, who will go over over the sea for us and bring it to us, that we may hear it and do it. But the word is very near you. It is in your mouth and in your heart so that you can do it. The Christians have read, especially in the apostolic scriptures, many verses that are interpreted to say that the Torah is indeed too hard for us to do. Just read Hebrews and you'll find a lot of this kind of language. They're not pulling it out of thin air. And how many of us grew up with Preachers telling us that the Torah was only meant to show us that we are too weak to keep it. And there's something wrong there, don't get me wrong. On on the other side, the Messianics and Jews would say that, oh, it's no problem to do the Torah. It's easy. We are made for this. So doing the Torah is only getting in line with our nature. There's a truth there too. But which is it? Well, as ever, the answer is it's both The Christians who say the Torah is too hard are not wrong, but that's only part of the story. Even the description of the New Covenant itself in Jeremiah 31 says that the New Covenant is not like the original covenant made with the fathers at Sinai, the covenant they broke, right? So that's in, that's Jeremiah 31, 32. Truly, there is the sense that the first covenant gets broken, and that's part of its purpose. And haven't we seen Israel struggle over the centuries of exile and redemption and exile and redemption? They struggled with this Torah. But does that mean that the Torah is too hard? Or does it mean that the first covenant doesn't quite yet bring us to the goal? Right? Are we talking about the Torah here? Is the problem with the Torah? Or is the problem with the covenant? Or is it a problem? Um, is the issue... Um, something that we need to, um, is it, are we going to throw out the whole Torah here? Or is it something different than that? Um, In fact, there's nothing wrong with the Torah. What we're seeing is a progression of covenants. It's a progression of covenants that shepherd us into growing up in the Lord. And so we have to look at the question through the lens of development, the development process. Development is going to be our key for how it is that we can look at the Christians and say, you know, Hebrews is what it is. (laughs) And how we can look at Moses here saying, this isn't too hard for you. We've got to bring these together somehow. And um, the answer is going to be first the one covenant, then the other covenant. That's what we need in our development process. It's a growth process that we have to go through in order to walk the Torah well, in order to walk it faithfully. And that growth process involves starting out 
with that Sinai covenant and moving on to the new covenant, both of which involve keeping the Torah, which is perfect. At first, when we are younger, God allows us to uh, try to keep the Torah from a youthful place where our motivation is often fear or duty. Fear and duty aren't the best motivators. As we mature by his grace, God helps us to write the Torah on our hearts. It's that same Torah, but under the second covenant, it gets written in a different place. And that makes all the difference for us. When the Torah is written on our hearts, we keep it from a place of experience and from love. And this is much better. The empowerment for faithfulness comes with the deeper understanding and the engagement of the heart, the heart of love for God and others. And so it's both. When we are young, the Torah is not yet written on our hearts. And in that case, it truly is too hard for us. But this struggle serves, as a, serves a purpose for us that leads us to repentance. And the repentance is followed by God gradually writing the Torah on our hearts. And so when we are older, truly the Torah is not too hard for us. As we mature, the Torah becomes the natural expression of our inner being. And many of us have experienced the Torah as a light yoke, not a burdensome one, right? So we have a progression. It does start out as being too hard for us, but that shows us what's going on inside, leading to repentance and leading to the same Torah written on a new place, on the heart. And from there, the Torah just flows effortlessly. And so, seeing this question through the lens of development, what I call the salvation pattern, helps to make sense of all the various verses and the passages we read from the beginning to the end of the Bible. Well, let's turn now to a few quick points more focused directly on Yeshua regarding today's conversation. In terms of walking, in John 14, Yeshua is called the way. You could say the road. He is the roadway in which we walk. It says there, Yeshua said to him, talking to someone here, he says, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. So what does this mean? It means that Yeshua is our example of what it looks like to live out the Torah in the nitty-gritty of everyday life, to apply the Torah to every part of life, fulfilling the Torah. He is our example of how to do this perfectly. So he is the way in which we walk. And he is also our guide on that path. And we can take heart in Yeshua's perfect walk on this earth because it is through Yeshua that Israel achieves the greatest walk of any people ever on the planet. Yeshua is a Jew. He's from Israel. And Moses is, is crying out to them here, choose life, walk in the right way. And many centuries later, one Jewish descendant of Israel, born in the backwater Galilee, walked it absolutely perfectly. Moses must have been so proud of him. This was the fulfillment of Israel's potential, and it didn't stop with Yeshua either. Yeshua was the only one to walk it perfectly, but his students also walked whole, wholeheartedly in the Torah, 
And there were many others, both men and women, who supported each other and walked out this fullness of Torah together. These were Jewish descendants of the generation we read about today in Deuteronomy that we're reading about in these portions that are standing in front of Moses. And Moses is crying out to them, choose the right way. Well, here we have their descendants, these who walked with Yeshua and these who walked with those who walked with Yeshua. And they suffered greatly as they walked and they sacrificed everything. And we walk in their shadows too. The Apostle Paul is perhaps the greatest, the highest point of all of these who follow Yeshua uh, because he was turned to the fullness of truth from such a low point to begin with, actually persecuting the believers. But once he turned to the path the Messiah called him to, he was fearless, a fearless Israelite, and so again, Moses must have been looking down, like, choose the right way, and he looks down, he sees Yeshua, and he's just, wow, you did it. <laughs> and he looks at the Apostle Paul, and he says, you did amazing. <laughs> that was great. And Paul knew that he would end up in Rome, the heart of the Western Gentile world at the time, and he knew what the Romans were capable of. But he knew, he knew he was going to his death even. But he knew that he was called there because even they needed to hear the gospel. And God gave him the opportunity to bring the word to the heart of darkness, the heart of Rome, right? We can think about that as we head into the dark side of the year. It's in Yeshua first, but also in these men and women that followed after Yeshua that we begin to see what we are capable of as human beings. Well, that's all for today. Thank you for listening. May God bless us to see and embrace the ending of a journey, even as we already begin a new journey in the year. May he, may he fill us with exactly what we need for that coming journey now and the faith that he is supplying everything we need for the journey. May he help us now to see past the walls we foolishly put up between us so that we can experience a great oneness as we stand before him on Rosh Hashanah as one people. May we actively learn about the pattern of salvation he has established for us to walk in, the pattern of Yeshua, so that we can always walk with sureness and joy. And may we rise up to be the people he has made us to be. Shalom.